Hello, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me today, me and Troy Against the World, is our founder and today's subject in many ways, Troy Goodfellow. This is my third week in a row. I'm going to be a, a, a regular. Well, you can't keep a good man down. No, people try. Especially when he keeps writing interesting and topical pieces about strategy games. Uh, so our topic today is going to be your National Character series, which you just finished up, and it was really well received. It was a great series of blog entries. And uh, since, since you wrote since you wrote the piece, I, I don't just want to qu- quiz you on what you wrote, so I was kind of thinking uh, I'd let you sort of steer the discussion today. So so what were, what were you trying to get across with the uh, National Character series? I guess I could tell a bit about the origins of it, because I haven't really gone into that. I mean, a lot of it was, um, I was writing, I mean, at the time, I started it in November uh, last year, which is a very crazy time for me. Uh, one thing I was doing was writing for, writing for PC Gamer, and I had just finished uh, the month before, I've been working on the month before, a, a opening moves guide for Civilization V for PC Gamer, something they were going to run, uh, sort of a how to get started with certain civs in certain conditions. So I did, you know, like domination for the Greeks and culture for the Indians. Those are two civs that works really. Those are two victory conditions that work very well for those civs. And that just got me thinking about, you know, how, especially with the Indians, what are they trying to tell me about India here? That India is small but crowded and full of culture. Because India in Civ five isn't a culture you can, isn't a nation you can expand really well with because you get a double unhappiness penalty for every new city, but a half unhappiness penalty for every population point within a city. So I, said, I was thinking to myself, okay, what, what is the message they're saying about India here? How are they understanding India with this power? This is not something we've seen before in any understanding of India um, in strategy games. Uh, so that got me thinking about, well, how do we think about nations in, in general. And this is not a new topic for me. This is something that has interested me for a while. Uh, way back in 2007, I wrote a long post about uh, nations and games of exploration, and the French and the English, the Dutch and the Spanish, and what the games, how they translated the colonial experience into nationhood, and I raised the possibility about expanding on that post later, and I never really did until finally last fall, where I thought, okay, um... I need something to write that's going to be easy and fast. I can do this quickly before Christmas. I can just write up these posts, and uh-huh. it'll be no trouble at all, because I know these games, and despite all the stuff that's going on right now in my world, this is relaxing. This is stuff I love. It's strategy games, and it's history. And so I knocked out the first few, and then I realized, I think it was actually the, the the second one, the Aztec one, was where I think I really hit my stride. The American one is really quite a mess. It's a disaster of an opening post, if you read it. It's sort of the worst of the bunch. It's just a bunch of, and this is what this happens, this is what this game does, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then I got to the Aztecs, and I started thinking seriously about, okay, what does, how do games try to understand, how are, each is a little bit different. For the Aztecs, it was, why do we see the Aztecs as these savage human sacrifice. That's all they are. They're just about butchery and murder. That's who the Aztecs are. Where does this fit in strategy games? Why do we have these people in strategy games? So I went to the discussion of archetypes and that sort of thing, and that sort of carried me the rest of the way through. So I have essays in there that are really larger essays about, you know, the French one is about how do you model culture 
in a strategy game if you accept the French as a cultured people. The Roman essay is about, can you have an overpowered sieve in a, na- in a game? And if you do, is that a bad thing? And how do players respond to the nature of balance in when you have a lot of factions, it's very hard to keep a balance at all, uh, let alone one that's historically unbalanced. So every essay sort of took on its own little tone along the way through with this core conceit. Um, we, uh, we expect nations to have personalities now in our strategy games, and we didn't always expect that. Um, we didn't even expect it in fantasy games for... Um, humans and orcs to be all that different. If you remember the first couple of Warcraft games. Right, they were mirror images. Yeah, they just had different art, more or less. And maybe a few different special powers or unique units at the very high level. But at the very basic, you know, they were mirror images with different art. This was not something that we expected from strategy games in general. Uh, strategy games were sort of like chess. There was, there was symmetry, there was balance sides, unless you were fighting a war game with specific e- equipment, something like you know a Panzer General or a Harpoon, then there wasn't any pro- expectation that both sides uh, would be would reflect any imbalance. And that all sort of changed as we moved uh, through the 90s into this expectation that when people play different sides, they want a different experience. So did you identify a moment where that expectation hardens and it becomes sort of, uh, you know, de rigueur to, to create a national, to, to give each faction the strong national identity? It's not something I've, I mean, the history's kind of mixed on this because it depends what you mean by strong national identity. Uh, there are so many different ways to do this. Uh, you can do it, you know, just in a very slight way, just give nations unique units and say, you know, that's what we call national culture, that's it. Each side is a different unit, but otherwise they're the same. Or give them really special powers, you can go the StarCraft route, and make everything, you know, radically, radically different. And I think, in many ways, StarCraft is really the, the important game here. Uh, StarCraft, I think, even though it's not a history game, changes the expectations of factions. I think very few historical strategy games go down that very harsh asymmetrical route that their their sides are radically and completely different. I think Age of Mythology is as close as you can get and that's more fantasy than history half the time. Uh, but I think once you have StarCraft out there saying well, well those, the Zerg and the Terrans are completely different from each other, you have other games trying to either doing this at the same time, like Age of Empires is in that direction at the same time, um, trying to disaggregate and distinguish the factions from each other. Um, and, of course, in the Civ series, the turning point is, is Sidmar's Alpha Centauri. Uh, that is the turning point for, for the, the Civ series. I mean, that's after Civilization II, before Civilization III. And that's where you have six human factions who are all archetypes, who all have very different strengths, very different weaknesses. Uh, you can play them all, and you can win strategically with all of them doing pretty much the same things, but there are clear bonuses to pushing towards your strengths. And that's where you, I think, start getting the Civ series uh, pushing into the, hey, wouldn't it be neat if the French and the English were different from each other? And we had this sort of thing, you had colonization in there as well. Sidmar's uh, colonization, which was actually after Civ II, um, and before Alpha Centauri. And you have that uh, having little tiny differences uh, between the nations. 
So you have a bunch of stuff going on throughout the 90s. Um, whether I could pick a single point where it crystallized, I don't know, because you have this cross-pollination going on throughout the strategy game world. Because, you know, Meyer and Shelley right. and Reynolds and, and Goodman all work together. <laughs> uh, Goodman and Shelley at Ensemble, uh, Shelley and uh, Meyer at Microprose, Reynolds and Meyer at Firaxis, and all of these people did most of the historical strategy games that I talk about. Empire Earth, Empire Dawn of a Modern World, uh, Prize of Nations, the Civ games, the Age of Empires games. Uh, those people are all from the same stew. So you have all these ideas cross-pollinating uh, in their own little discussion groups. So I'd love to do a game genealogy and track down where all of this stuff filtered out in. Um, but I, I think a lot of it comes down to um, StarCraft. Do you, do you think this has been a good thing for, for faction design? I'm, you know, if you go back to the Alpha Centauri example, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I've, I've, I really appreciate about Alpha Centauri, for instance, is yes, there is benefit to sort of min-maxing your, your faction. So, you know, if you are playing uh, the industrialists running a very, you know, cash and industry-focused strategy... Uh, really kind of lets you maximize your benefits, but it also maximizes your harms. What, what I like about Alpha Centauri is it lets you sort of decide whether you're going to use your factional strengths to mitigate, you know, to, to mitigate weaknesses, mm -hmm. or whether you're going to, weaknesses of other strategies, or whether you're going to use them to pursue uh, the extreme ends of your faction ideology. What seems to happen by the time you've got like Civ Five rolling around, and Civ Five, I think this is this is one of the things that you know I, I really struggled with when I was reviewing it, is Civ Five really constrains much more than than a lot of other a lot of other games in that vein, where there is a right way to play these civilizations. It certainly felt like there was much more of a right answer more than there've been in a lot of other strategy games. Certainly more than there was in Alpha Centauri. Uh, do you, do you find that do you find that now? It's turned from being a uh, national character as flavor, as differentiation, mm -hmm. to national character as gameplay destiny. I'm not sure I go quite that far. Um, I think that, I mean, in Civ, you can, in, as you can in pretty much all of them, you can fight against uh, the trends. You can fight against the instincts, and sometimes you have to. Uh, if you're on an archipelago map and you have a crap naval country and England's out there, you've got to deal with it. I mean, there's just no getting around that. Um, and if you're on a large map, you know, with suddenly aggressive enemies, uh, India's culture victory, you better win that by the Middle Ages or you're screwed. Um, so you, you have to expand as India and take the chances, and that means you become a traitor, so you can get all the luxury resources. So there are ways to go against it, um, but often you're, you're forced into going against it. It's not that you choose. It is not a policy choice. It is, uh, well, I can't do the optimal strategy. I'm being constrained from doing the optimal strategy. Therefore, I do something else. So in that way, I guess uh, you could be correct. Um, but the big problem uh, with constraining uh, the factions too much and limiting their personalities and making them so unique and so stuck to a certain historical period, let's take, let's take England in Civilization V, for example. This is one of the few England that is actually an, a naval power. I mean, yes, they have the long bowmen, but the AI is primed to be a naval power. That is what it does. 
That is the AI's preferred strategy, despite having long bows that can hit from three squares away, three tiles away, and they can do a whole lot of damage, more than a crossbow because of the, the, the distance. So they're great, awesome, wonderful units, but because of their way they've written the character, uh, the AI prefers to be a naval power. This kind of hurts the AI, a very already very weak AI, if the AI has to follow a strategy that doesn't work all that well. Now, the hope with Civ 5 was, well, there would be, be other strategies that would follow, it would adapt, it would learn. We all know better than that. This is not a AI that is very good at adapting or learning where to put the catapult in a line of infantry. So a grand strategy uh, for a landlocked England, it's kind of screwed. It doesn't quite know what to do. Uh, so if you have an AI that is actually working towards pushing its strengths, and it can't get to its strengths, for example, you're the Romans and you need your legions, but you need iron to do it, um, and otherwise you're stuck, you have nothing other powers that can push you out, then you've limited Rome, you've constrained Rome, and you've hobbled Rome. Now, if that's something I do as a player, if I take their iron, or I grab it before they do, that's something else. If you stick them on a continent without it, then you have an AI, you have virtually an impotent nation. And national character becomes not just destiny, it becomes sort of a game-breaking mechanism in some ways. So one of, one of the things that emerged fairly early in your series, uh, really, really starting with the Aztecs and then continuing with the, continuing with the Babylonians, is, uh, well, I mean, these are two civilizations you kind of put the hammer to them uh, in, in, these, in these early posts, sort of questioning whether they were really as big a deal. They, they loom much larger in strategy games right. uh, than, than they did in history. And it, it sort of seems like these are, these are factions that, you know, if they did not exist... If they did not exist historically, then we would have had to invent them, I guess. Where they they fill needed roles that you need somebody you need somebody who's differentiated in this way mm-hmm. uh, for for a lot of these strategy games, and so then it becomes sort of a pick a pick a civilization out of a hat, uh, you know, pick a civilization out of a hat situation, uh, where you know, less, lesser civilizations are just sort of added just so that players can have this set of tools to play with. Well, I'm not going to say necessarily lesser. I don't want to go down that route. I mean, you want to have, you want to have, you know, non-Europeans is what it comes down to. You can't just have a game-like civilization that spans the entire world and have, well, we got it, the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Poles and the Greeks and the Germans and the French and the Dutch and the English and all these people. And yeah, let's because then it becomes you know a bunch of Europeans fighting each other, and that's not civilization. Um, you have, though the, I mean, the first civ really was it was Europe plus it was Europe and France, uh, really. You know, you have Egypt and Babylon, China, and the Aztecs and the Zulus. It was you know Europe and France. Uh, that was the original civilization. What a great great bunch of people that was. Uh, but really, there is, there is this, I think. I mean, a lot of these cultural myths, these archetypes, they do come out of history. I mean, the Aztecs were a human sacrifice society. I mean, that is unavoidable. I think there is more to them than that. Um, They were clearly hated by their neighbors. Otherwise, Cortes would not have had such an easy ride going in there if he didn't have 10,000 Tlaxcalans behind him to be the cannon fodder. Uh, So these were 
the Aztecs were seen as the big bullies in the area, and they're a huge, they're an important uh, Mesoamerican civilization. And they built and they built big things, and this is really an important thing for us to see what a civilization is. So it builds big things, which is why it took us so long to get the Polynesians into a civilization game. Polynesians are a great and important civilization. We don't get them until a Civ Five expansion. That's always, always bugged me, uh, because the Polynesians have spread so far and really an amazing, amazing people. Um, so yes, but the so the Aztecs do reflect, you know, this, there is something real about the human sacrifice thing. Um, but you know, the imagery is—I mean, he's always scowling uh, in Civ Five. He's in front of Montezuma, is marching behind this fire pit, and he's yelling at a crowd of angry warriors. And it's okay. There's the savage, um, and it's kind of like we want to have a savage. And Montezuma is always the nastiest, Civ Four especially, the worst neighbor. He will come and he will take everything you own uh, very quickly. He'll just build up swarms of units and you wonder if it doesn't make any sense. How can he do this so fast? He's got to be cheating. But no, he's just evil. And uh, so he, but he does become this, this small empire that is only really significant because it was large, large at the time, but you know, if it had fallen like the Mayans did through Civil War, uh, on its own, the, the 1200s, really the Aztecs would not have been in the first Civ. But they were taken in a Blitz Creek campaign by the Spanish, who were awed by their gold and their monuments. It's a great story, the story of Cortes. And he runs into the Aztecs and he's astonished by their civilization. Great. Wonderful story, and there they are. Uh, but, you know, the, the history of how Europeans interact with different civilizations is the story of how Europeans tell the story of those civilizations in their games. It's why the Mongols are uh, hordes of horsemen in medieval strategy games, where they just appear and take everything before them. Um, that's who the Mongols are, because that's who the, what the Europeans saw them as. Now, the Central Asians may have saw them as this as well, but we don't have many games about you know Central Asia in the Middle Ages. We have lots of games about Europe in the Middle Ages, and where there are Mongols, there is death to follow. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in the Zulu piece, uh, I quoted uh, my friend Richard Price's book, that, you know, the Zulus just, as soon as they were sighted uh, by English explorers and were told they were ruled by a great warrior prince, it was like, well, holy crap, these are the Africans we've been looking for. Uh, and they immediately entered uh, English stories as, you know, the paradigmatic native warrior race, the strong, savage barbarians that we are to civilize, um, though it didn't get around to fighting them for another 50 years. So these are the stories we tell. Now, I think we're getting better at this. I think that in general, um, we see, I think we see some of this in Civilization V, in fact. We're getting better at, you know, not seeing civilizations through the exclusively Western lens. But for a long time, that is, those are the stories that European and American strategy games have been telling. Uh, I'd love to know if there are any games like this in that are homegrown in China, uh, in Japan, in India, in Iran, that have a completely different uh, cultural background. Because, you know, in Iran and Persia, uh, Alexander the Great is a great villain. Uh, China, China is still the center of the world. Uh, Japan is a very odd view of the West. India, of course, has its skewed perspective. So I always wanted to, I'd love to see an historical strategy game come out of those areas, a global grand strategy game, uh, not, um, not a, 
uh, rise of the three kingdoms type thing. Because I think that would actually tell us a lot about how we see our histories. Because these historical characters, these national characters, are all based on real history or real understandings of history. They didn't just, except for some things in Rise of Nations, where, you know, if the Mayans advance to the gunpowder age, they get super cannons. That's pretty ahistorical. Uh, But in general, these are all based on strong interpretations of history, what we think is important about the Germans. Oh, they're great and efficient industrial people. They modernize quickly. Uh, about the Russians, you know, they have a harsh winter and life is cheap. You know, these are things that we believe, or these are shorthand terms we use when we think about these nations' histories. And it's something we do all the time when we write, when we read politics. It's terrible analysis, uh, but, but games are math. If you want to have differentiation, you have to differentiate along the math. And the math is the mechanics. So how do you make the mechanics into shorthand for disaggregation? You simplify. And that's where we end up. I'm not sure it's all conscious stereotyping, and it's not necessarily conscious bias. But it is absolutely um, a viewing of, an, a translation of history into game, translation of our understanding of history into game form. Do you think it even, do you think it even necessarily rises to the level of just a a Western bias, or do you think it's sort of a narrow bias, just even within the sort of Western perspectives we we bring to these stories? I mean, you know, comparing what you have to say about the way games portray the English, for example, Mm -hmm. certainly seems like, you know, your your, your English imperialist might might, might agree with with a lot of a lot of the ways that the, that the empire is portrayed in games, you know it is pragmatic. It is you know it it is ruthlessly pragmatic. It you know it, it believes in you know believes in the balance of power. It's it's a na- it's a naval it's a naval it's, they are a naval race, um, and then you get sort of perhaps more of a you know a Churchillian perspective on what is Germany. You know I mean if you read what what. Churchill often wrote about the Germans. He has this, and he, certainly he wasn't the only one, but he had this very, he had this very mechanistic view uh, of who the German people were, and that's why they sort of rise as this sort of like Teuton mass, um, you know, in, in his yep. writings. That I think, you know, even, you know, that even a German would vehemently disagree with, but yet there again, uh, do, do the Germans even get to tell their own story? in these strategy games, or are we really working from, uh, you know, Anglo-American sources for, for well, these for these, for these We games? really have very few uh, wide, first wide-ranging strategy games that span a whole lot of history uh, that attribute characteristics to a nation. And they, frankly, there are very few of these. These are very popular games. The Age of Empires series, the Civ series, Rise of Nations, um, the first Europa Universalis did it, and that was a quite popular game. Uh, but in general, this is a very American type of game design. Um, there aren't many German games that have uh, this. Mo- German strategy games tend to be uh, RTSs. If they're historical, they'll be uh, set in World War II, maybe. Um, and they'll be just a standard real-time strategy game, and then you move the units around and kill things. There isn't really a strong... Uh, focus on a national character beyond, you know, maybe the Russians get really cheap units. And that's pretty much it. But it just comes down really to the different unit balance as opposed to the national character. Or they'll have, you know, uh, medieval business sims. Um, I think right, there's patrician. A, yeah. Like Patrician and Port Royal and uh, Europa. 
and these sorts of things. Uh, the fourteen, the the fourteen ninety two series, the, the the Anno series. I mean, these are these are your stereotypical German RTSs. Uh, tr- trading games where you build cities and, mon- and trade money and become powerful and rich. It's a glorification of, of, of the Hanseatic League. I mean, I, I had a whole section in that German thing that I had to cut out because it didn't quite fit. On And why do the Germans always go back to either World War II or their distant medieval past? Like why, is, why do the Germans really focus on that Hanseatic period? Because it really wasn't even a Germany then, and it was largely Norse, and there was a lot of other stuff going on, but you had, you know, the center of trade at the Baltic, and there are these is there's some great cultural legend there that I'm just not quite getting, because I'm not German, um, and I think there really is another series of essays to be written, not by me, uh, but by somebody else about uh, cultural tastes in games. I'm convinced German gamers are very, very different in the strategic uh, type, the types of strategy games they they like and they make, and I think that's rooted in something cultural. Uh, but yeah, and this is really an Anglo-American perspective. Um, I mean, the, the balance of power thing with Britain was generally a top of strategy games in general, not just about the British and strategy games, but that balance of power is such a central mechanic in strategy games. We forget that it's historically, it was historically contingent on British history. It was a British idea, and that it does not reflect all of human history. Um, but it's, it, in general, these are Anglo-American ideas, um, and, and they're Anglo-American games, even if they are made by you know immigrants. Um, they're not. We don't have uh, the Indian perspective on uh, the British Empire. Now, you might in certain campaigns. The Age of Empires Three Indian campaign is about the, the Indian mutiny, and the English are clearly the bad guys. And it is, like all of the Age of Empires campaigns, ridiculously ahistorical. Uh, but there we have it. But it's, you know, it's the English are the bad guys. Uh, you know, as they are in many American movies. You know, the English accent. The, Eng- the English are the bad guys, and they're the villains. Uh, they're the imperialists and the snobs, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think an Indian game on uh, the Raj period would be a fascinating and deep understanding of how they see how they're how they ref, how they reflect on uh, the English imperial experience because it wasn't all for the bad but they clearly wanted the English out uh, though they have hung on to English as a language and hung on to many English political traditions uh, because they recognize them as being good uh, maybe better than what other ideas Nehru might have had at the time uh, but there is a history there that I would love to see explored from the Indian perspective. Um, I like to. I mean, there are some games I don't want to see. I, I certainly don't want to see a a, a, a a game about about Balkan politics in the 1990s, made by Serbs or by Croats or by Bosnians with national characteristics. I think that's the type of thing that I can get away from. Um, there certainly are bad paths you can go if you want to take this national character thing to its extreme. But there are different history. There are different understandings of histories out there. Um, and the histories that we tell ourselves in the West uh, are reflected in our games. I was having an exchange with um, someone in my form spring. I said something mean about Civil War reenactors. And he said he shouldn't say something mean about Civil War reenactors, more or less. Um, and, you know, he was right on some others. It was a bit harsh. And I might have implied that all Civil War reenactors were, you know, secessionist fetishists. But he said, you know, sometimes people have history just for fun. And... I replied, but history isn't just for fun. 
you have to understand that even if I, I love history and I think it's fun and it's a great setting, there are always you know subconscious messages you're sending. There's always some. There's always taking a little bit of putting a bit of yourself into it. Now you can reach out and you can teach with it. I think that you know introducing people to new civilizations and into to new leaders um, is great. I mean, I love that. For example, Rise of Nations is the Nubians, and that it is the Bantu. Um, I love that it has you know the Russians and the Mongols as diametrically opposite civilizations. One causes attrition, one resists attrition. And I just love how that reflects, you know, their, their different approaches, different historical attitudes towards territory. For the Russians, you know, territory is something you use as a defense. It's your last bulwark against invasion. For the Mongols, uh, territory is just whatever's between me and that other place. So you have this, I love that kid, that games can do that. They can actually epitomize history. But, you know, history is serious business. Um, so it's, I think it's important that we ask ourselves where do these ideas come from. A lot of, a, a lot of what we, we talk about when we're talking about faction design are what, are what are their strengths? And I suppose you know, implicitly there, there is weakness. But when it comes to taking historical powers and turning, you know, rendering them into uh, playable factions in a game, it really seems like they're, they're much more designed... Uh, with with an eye toward you know there's there's some set of values that that is normal yeah and then national character is primarily where your bonuses lie yeah I mean they're they're very about buffs I mean they're, they're national buffs is what it comes down to right and you know if you, if you take a game like EU three where you know you got hit, you know at any given point you've got a historical starting date and what is the you know political and cultural climate in your in your country at that given time. What what EU three does is a lot of times when you when you take over a you know a, a country in EU three, uh, you, you are dealing with as many weaknesses as you are strengths. There are very there are very few. There are very few powers uh, that are you know that are all to the good. There right. there are some clear problems you've got to address right away. Yeah. But it seems when you come to your more open ended, four uh, X game, your RTS. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of emphasis on creating vulnerabilities for these factions. Well, Age of Empires, that's where Age of Empires is different, especially Age of Empires 1 and 2. Now, Age 3 didn't do this, really. But Age of Empires 1 and 2, remember, they would close off entire parts of the tech tree. Like, you would get, some nations would get only the, the puniest siege weapon and couldn't upgrade to the highest one. Uh, they wouldn't be able to research technologies that would increase their priests because... Uh, ensemble decided, well, this culture didn't have great siege weapons, so therefore it, that part of the tech tree is completely cut off from it. Um, Rise of Nations, you know, you, you can research whatever you want. I mean, nations may have unique units, but no one stopped from getting the best cannon uh, out there. But Age of Empires would just lop off entire parts of the tech tree. So, sorry, you can't have monotheism. Sorry, you're stuck with galleys. Sorry, that's just not the way it works. Um, and so there really was this problem of, so what is this civilization good for? Um, and you can you could see in the debates and the forums at the time, you know, how do I play the Shang? Uh, how do I play the Yamato? You know, these guys really don't fit into my uh, into my way of usually playing. And it would often come down to once again, well, you got to focus on your strengths and just play to your strengths constantly. But the map wouldn't always lean that way, uh, and your opponents might not cooperate with your. Yamato horse archer rush um, might get in the way of that, which is too bad. But you know, uh, 
but that's the way uh, Age of Empires was. It really was about creating very different civilizations that had some really major weaknesses. I think of um, the Celts in Age of Empires II, who had fast infantry, but relatively weak. Their big advantage was speed. So they were a hit-and-run with infantry. Now, the hit-and-run with infantry is completely absurd if you think about it, but that's how the Celts were designed. Uh, very fast units, and their World Raider was the fastest uh, infantry unit on the board, so they could hit a city. You could actually do, a, do a, a small city raid with infantry and bring them back and heal them, which isn't something you could do with other civilizations. Uh, but they had to pay for that. They didn't have uh, a lot of cavalry, uh, didn't have a lot of heavy infantry. So you have this problem. There, so there were weaknesses. But other than that, you're right. I mean, these are really about national buffs. These are about what aspect of this country do we want, this nation, do we want to make stronger or do we want to emphasize? What do we want to highlight? Do we want to make the Americans richer or more technologically advanced so they get bonuses? But they don't get a penalty to because of Lady Gaga for some reason. So you have this whole thing going on where you don't have uh, pluses and minuses, unlike in, you know, where there were you know, there were opposites, uh, strong, strong opposites, where you would, if the Gaians wanted to go economic and, and make a lot of money and bore into the Earth's core, um, they would be paying a bit of a price for that um, because they would have greater unhappiness at home, uh, though in some ways we set off by their prevailing uh, pro-Earth bonus or pro-planet pro bonus. So it's... But generally, yeah, it's really about keeping what we want to make strong about the civilization, what makes them special. And weaknesses aren't generally special. Um, they don't have slower gathering rates, for instance. But, you know, I, I would argue that weaknesses are special. Mm -hmm. and they are, they, they're yeah, interesting. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of any game that... It's weird, but I'm a big fan of games that handicap right. the player in some way, that give you something to struggle right. against. That, yeah. and, uh, you know, it seems like one of one of the one of the things that comes up in your in your national character series, and certainly just something that you notice, you know, as you play as you play strategy games, is that you know it it it, it sort of makes Orientalism a global phenomenon, right? Where you know here here are these magical people from Central Europe who have this unit that's different from everything else, and somehow this is historical. Here are these this other magical people from you know South America, and here's what makes them special. And so you end up, you know, where where these factions are not just different, but in many ways they are some, they are somehow rendered exotic. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, when you're talking about China, for instance, uh, in the national character series, and, and maybe you know, I was I was kind of over uh, EU three by the time Divine Wind came around, but it's an interesting way of modeling. You know, why doesn't China, with all its resources, you know, go on a spree and try to try to take over the world, uh, and, and you know, Divine Wind at least tries to model that. You know the the faction the faction dynamics at the imperial right. court. Uh, how there's no there's no steady hand on on the till on, on the on the tiller because the state's priorities are constantly shifting as the power balance at court shifts around. And I really I I really enjoy the idea of stuff like that because. You know, if if you create strategy games where every every sieve is the special right. flower, you create sort of mysteries like, well, why aren't these guys more important? You know, historically, you, you begin to you begin to wonder like, well, what what happened historically? And maybe that's maybe that's good. It stimulates curiosity, but at but at the same time, you you then create these sort of like, 
you know, they become they become somehow a, a special race with a super unit, and then you you create this idea that there's there's this strong national character that somehow renders people very different from each other. When oftentimes you can sort of locate that difference in circumstance, in context, and by not including weaknesses, it seems like you deprive a lot of context from the from taking historical nations and turning them into playable factions. Yeah, I mean, I can see where you're coming from with the whole with the with the weakness thing. Um, it's, I mean, I'm, I too. I mean, I, I like having things to, to fight against, like fighting against the tide, like being overwhelmed. So I like last stand games and tower defense. The idea that you know there's this, uh, that there's a certain element of failure. I have, to, I have to, some failure I have to deal with, and I have to put up with it, and I've got to work around it. Um, and weaknesses allow you to do that. Armies that don't have cavalry, or whatever. It's. Just, I think that. One of the difficulties is how you work that into, you know, uh, one. I mean, they do have weaknesses in some ways. In civilization, I mean, the big one of the big weaknesses in civilization, if you want to call them weaknesses, is you know the u- unique units often cost more. Um, so if you pick, sometimes they can cost ridiculously more. Um, so if you want to take that, you're taking there's a price there. Uh, you do have, which isn't really a huge weakness, because there are going to be variable costs for every civilization. It's I'm not sure I quite buy that you're going to create this impression that, well, why people are going to wonder why people didn't do better. Because, you know, I think people understand some people did well in history and some people did poorly in history. I mean, we don't have Romans around anymore. And I don't think any people are going around saying, wow, whatever happened to the Romans? Because I think people know, no matter how great the Romans are in your game, eventually the Romans fall. Because things fall, as all things must. Um, you do have. I, I like the idea of you know Orientalism spreading throughout the world. That everyone is a special flower. I think it actually does the opposite. I think in some ways national character we've become so inured to it, so used to it, that unless the changes are unless the differences are really really dramatic, it's kind of a bit of a blandness to it. Uh, you saw this a bit in some complaints about Civilization Four. Uh, especially after the second expansion, the new civs came out. People were like, "Well, it's just the same old traits as always." You know, how are so they're, these new civilizations don't mean anything to me? Why are the Zulu so special now? They're just the same old traits. They just picked two different ones. It's like, well, yeah, because that's how the game works. Uh, I think you got to because they are mechanics. You get a certain blandness to it uh, that every. I mean, one of my friends. Uh, a friend said to me, you know, com- all, all com- computer games are math. Uh, and if computer games are math, and people understand that, and they just see the history as mechanics, I don't think people actually go into the game and say, wow, I just met the Zulus. They're like the first time. Uh, but generally, I think it's, there's a, the exoticism kind of fades pretty quickly. And it becomes kind of, I think it very rapidly deteriorates into um, okay, this is a different gaming experience and it's only exotic when you play them the first time and you see how different they are. Uh, watching them play, play, play against you, okay, it's great to see, you know, the timid elephants show up in Medieval 2 Total War. Those kind of kick some ass. Um, that's kind of exotic and funky when the elephants first show up. But in general, I think that it's exotic to play them and to try them out. Uh, but I don't really see it as a it's kind of a reverse Orientalism. I don't think the national characters, as diverse as they are mechanically, I don't think impressionistically within the game they carry a whole lot of weight. I think there are historical echoes, I think there are historical imprints, and people expect different play experiences, but I don't think there's this a, a visceral and emotional attraction. 
Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that you're wrong, but I, I do find myself thinking, I mean, again, I, I think about, you know... This is all very personal. Go, go ahead. The Germans, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I look at the Germans a lot. I look at the Russians where you've got the you've got this idea of the Russians are forever and always will be uh, in most strategy games uh, the sprawling land of the stolid, fatalist Russian peasant. Yep. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, really you've got, you, you've got experiences... I mean, really, again, it's that's selecting yeah. from a narrow range of Russian historical experience. That a lot of what gets lost is, you know, I mean, you can you can have you know Peter the Great in you know in the strategy game as a character, but what you don't have is a Russia that is outward looking, that is constantly borrowing and you know taking you know taking other civilizations' innovations and yeah. you know kind of, you know trying to, trying to revitalize itself. Instead, yeah, I mean, you've got a country that's always sort of represented as this grim, dour, backwards land. And there is a lot of tragedy in Russian history. But it, it does seem like then games end up playing this role of you know re- reinforcing reinforcing these narratives that strip a lot of individuality and flavor from you know from factions. Now that's yeah. inevitable in a strategy game because you're obviously abstracting you know entire civilizations. Uh, you know it's sure there's no way to do that without sort of flattening it. Uh, but it becomes this, uh, you know, you bring up the, you bring, you bring up toward the end the theme of repetition. Mm-hmm. That the moment one game says, "Well, here's what you know, here's what defines this faction," that can be completely arbitrary. But once it's done, it often will be repeated for no good reason other than, well, this is now what people associate with this faction. Yep. And that seems to me, you know, th- there there is a, there is a danger there. There is a risk there. At the very least, there's a risk of boredom. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. I mean, the Russians—it's—it's it's, it's tough for game designers. I mean, people have expectations for who the Russians are, um, both trained by games and trained by the news and trained by their own reading, uh, and like me, trained by by, by Red Dawn. Uh, you have expect expectation of you know, who the Russian people are, uh, who the Russian, what the Russian nation is, and you can, as a designer, you say, no, this isn't that Russia. This is a different Russia. This is the Russia of the space age. I'm doing. This is the Russia of science and industrialism and starving peasants and gulags. You know, this is the Russia that I'm doing. Or this is the Russia of Peter the Great. It would be nice if, you know, Civ Five had Peter the Great as a leader. And maybe, you know, research regimens would cost half as much or something. I think it would be a very nice power for Peter the Great. Uh, but they only have the one leader. So there are... Be, but I think that'd be a great idea to have, you know, the Russia that is Westernized and that is pushing out. But even that, you know, is the is the is another Russian stereotype. The Russia caught between East and West. Which way do we go? It's the tension in Russian history. Um, are they in Oriental despotism or are they a striving towards Western modernism? Um, that's the Russian narrative since the Romanovs, uh, especially since Peter. So. Yeah, but repetition is a problem, and but you have to, but you do want to run into you know player expectations. I mean, you can't have, I mean, you you couldn't have you know the, I guess the Romans show up and they don't have legions. And that, right. That's you can't have the Romans show up and not have you know something related to government as being their strength. Um, the Greeks have to have something cultural going on. If it's Alexander, you can have be a smart ass, but generally it's a culture, diplomacy, and the like. So that's who we, so what we associate the Greeks as is the gold, the golden age of Athens and Alexander. As I said, those are the two Greeks as we understand. 
Uh, those are our national myths. So Pericles and Alexander, and that's pretty much it. Sparta, maybe, but we kind of just tell. They were, they were great soldiers, but they weren't really Greece, uh, if you want to go right down to how they're reflected in general. So we have... The repetition is a problem, but you do need to meet players somewhere. Now, you can get away from this if you do it in a more confined historical space. If you do a game on you know, the Middle Ages, um, then you know you can have different types of Russians and different types of Germans and different types of Franks, and each of them have different types of units and maybe little bonuses. If you do have a Cold War game, a Cold War game, a game set in the Cold War, as a grand strategy game, it wouldn't work very well because there's not a lot to do besides glare over the summit table and threaten impotently. Uh, but you know, then you could have a very different Russia and a very different America. Um, I think that uh, empires down in the modern world try to do a little bit of that. Um, it's it had you know some other special because uh, each nation had special powers. And you know, the Russians had a special communist power uh, that would make people work faster, and the Americans had Voice of America, which would convert units to your, to your side. Uh, so some RTSs have tried to move beyond uh, the generic understandings. But once again, they're generally very focused in time. Uh, Empire Dawn of the Modern World is just you know modern age to the present. Or uh, they have... Or they're very, very focused, like on a single conflict, like World War II. Uh, or the Civil War, um, or the like. So we have... I can understand people getting getting bored of the Russians, getting bored of the fatalistic thing, but I mean, if I didn't have a Russia where, you know, that ha a Russia, a, a 19th century Russia that didn't have, you know, the importance of the winter, Tolstoy's depressions, and, you know, serfs... You, you, would have to, you would have to invent one. It, it wouldn't be Russia, right? And that would not be, you would have to focus on, you know, how you want to Ivan the Terrible's Russia, uh, Russia that's, you know, play, paying taxes to the Mongols because the Mongols haven't left yet. Um, do you want, Peter, do you want the first Romanov Russia, the Russia during the, the time of, the, of, of troubles? I mean, this is the thing with national character. National character is a snapshot of a golden age in most cases. A snapshot of a high point. Very rarely are these traits that carry on for, you know, centuries. You know, could argue maybe French culture, you know, uh, German industry. We have what a hundred and maybe a hundred and eighty years, but even probably less than that for the Germans. That's a financial power, not an industrial power. But you want eighteen seventy to say nineteen eighty. So you have like a hundred years of German industrial might. Uh, maybe go to 1850 if you want to be especially generous. Uh, the Roman legions, okay, I'll give you a few centuries there. Al Alexander the Great, you've got what? 12 years? 12, 15 years? Um, but then you have the, uh, if you want to bring in the, fall, the, success, the successors yeah. after that, and then you have a couple of centuries. But in general, we're just focused, they, they focus on high points, you know, uh, and the Russian high point, you know. Late, late 18th to 19th century, strong imperial power, one of the arbiters of Europe, kicks Napoleon out, um, occupies Siberia, defeats the Turk, that's who the Russians are, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, Tchaikovsky, woohoo, that's, uh, that's who Russia is. Uh, England's uh, naval power, it's not today's England, where it's about you know football and the Falklands War and 
Elton John. It's, you know, that's today's England. That's not the England we think about, which is Redcoats and the Royal Navy, I mean, and Asian Corps. You know, that's the England we celebrate. That's who England is to us. National characters reflect national myths. They're national myths that we in the West recognize or honor. And we don't have national myths about the Aztecs. We don't have national myths about the Mongols, besides being the vengeful hand of God. We don't have national myths about the Zulus, besides being the plucky Africans who overwhelmed a small British outpost before being massacred uh, shortly afterwards. You don't, but you know we have national myths in some ways about Japan because J- Japan has always had this attraction to the West and always has since the Mikado. And we have you know for China, which is why China is very hard to define. Uh, for, for the ancient cultures, you know, for, for Egypt, it's about monuments. It's about wonders of the world. It's about exoticism, uh, which is why I mentioned, you know, which is why Rome Total War has pharaonic armies, because they look cool. Because that's the Egypt we want. The Egypt of the Ten Commandments, man. We don't want a boring Egypt with pikes and horses. We want to see Pharaoh leading his armies into battle. Because that's the Egypt we love. That's the, that's the national myth we have of Egypt. It's not the Cleopatra's Egypt. It's the Ramses Egypt. It's the Yul Brynner Egypt. That's the Egypt that we, that we, we celebrate. Um, so that, the national characters, I mean, it's, we, if it, if it, as, long as, celebra- as long as they're going to be national myths that are universally recognizable, then you're going to end up with a lot of overlap and a lot of repetition. But yes, sometimes people either will just make up a myth, like the Iroquois woodwalking power. I'm not sure they can run through forests that much faster uh, than the Sioux or the, or the Cherokee, but there we have it. Uh, and now it's spread, and there we have it. Um, Maybe sometimes it's just easier than the Nubians, the merchant power in Rise of Nations, because they traded along the Nile, I guess. They weren't especially a merchant culture. Um, they, they built pyramids too, you know, pretty neat looking ones. They even conquered Egypt for a while. Uh, maybe you want to look at the Nubians in a different light. Um, but in general, the, if you're going to have national myths and recognizable national myths as a center for national character, they will inevitably be overlap. And accessibility is so important in this national character stuff. That's true, and as we bring up on the show time and again, we like our games to have instant, intuitive understandings. We, you know, if you can keep us from referring to the manual to figure out how something works, we're generally happy. So as much as I might sometimes be tired of, you know, the, the stereotypes of that, that come with the way these, these civilizations are represented in games, at the same time, it is nice having this familiarity with sitting down to play Russia and knowing the odds are very good that you're going to have a lot of cheap, sturdy units to go out and send as, you know, cannon fodder up against the enemy. That is a nice that, that's a nice that's a nice understanding to bring to the table that the and game it, doesn't have to teach you. And it's amazing that we've pretty been pretty much been taught that by games. I mean even if we knew, you know, Russian history and Russian military history, if you know, just we sat down to our first game of, say, Europa Universalis One with the super cheap Russian infantry, I don't think you would people would walk in saying, "Well, this is Russia, so I'm going to have some cheap units." But we've generally come to expect that from the Total War games, just like we expect and Germans and to RTSs. have expensive, high quality units and good troops, but not many of them. Right. I mean, this is just something we've come to expect as gamers, and I wonder how many, so many people. I don't think I've often said that you know I don't think that games are really good at teaching history. They're good at getting people interested in history, but they're not very good at, at teaching it. And you know, it's, but for, so for a lot of people, you know, strategy games are their entree 
into a wider historical world. You know, they like the idea of tanks smashing into each other. They saw the History Channel a couple of times, and they might, you know, get interested in it and learn a little bit more about strategy games about World War II. Um, it could go in two different ways. I don't think Panzer Corps is going to do that, but uh, some other game might. Um, I think that that's... It's kind of cool that games can do that and might push and having these differences. Like people run into the Aztecs in Civilization V and say, wow, they really killed a lot of people, did they? What is the sacrifice power all about? Um, the histories in the Civilopedia are you know, very short uh, for a lot of these things and not all that detailed. And I felt you know, it had leads people to some uh, interesting memoirs and read more about Mesoamerican society. Um, that's fine. I'm not sure a lot of people do, but maybe some will. And uh, games, yeah, I mean, they, they give us expectations we can carry forward, and I think sometimes give us expectations uh, that can be undone by the history that we read. Uh, I think we both read way too much history. There was one last thing I wanted to get to about this, and that is a lot of what we talk, we've talked about today and a lot of what you talk about in your National Character your series concerns uh, military exploits. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, how we define how what differentiates these nations is often based on what unit do they have you know how do they how do they slaughter their enemies differently (laughs) from from their neighbor right and partly that is the as we discussed in the show before strategy games have you know an overweening emphasis on war um but there there was one example i found very interesting and it, it got me wondering what what strategy games you know how national character could be manifested in more peaceful pursuits mm-hmm. and that was your example of children of the nile yeah. uh which is which is a city builder that really kind of tweaks the formula to show what makes perhaps an egyptian city different from the way you know you know from a conventional you know 20th century metropolis you know how do you how yeah. do you why did, was why was an Egyptian city built the way it was? What 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 defined an Egyptian city? Uh, so could you get into that example a little bit and talk a bit about how you know if if there were more games dealing with national character in peacetime, uh, how how do you think they how do you think they would approach it? I mean, Children of the Nile is one of my favorite games of all time. I've probably written about it more than any other city builder, um, and I think largely because it is just such a it's such a beautifully balanced, um, I think in my review I called it an alien world. And it really was. It was an alien world, both for a city builder, because the way it's had Pharaoh before, it, Pharaoh always kind of felt a little bit like all the other impressions, even though it had the ebb and flow of the Nile uh, mechanic as well. City of the Children of the Nile really reminded you, well, you know, there's all these great monuments being built, but there are also people living in mud, and your palaces aren't going to get really, really huge. Um, and places, it, it really felt like this was, you know, 3000 BC. Um, it made you realize how long it took to build one of these monuments. There were military exploits, you did have to build armies, but they were always off map. You just sent the army out. Um, and occasionally you'd get raided and you have to fight those guys off, but they'd always leave. They wouldn't tear your stuff down generally. Uh, Children of the Nile was a revelation in some ways uh, for how you could do a city builder and uh, because it was so wedded and so committed to what it thought was an historically accurate period, historically accurate reflection of the time. I mean, it had temples and gods, but in all the other impression city builders, you honor the gods and they bless you. It's, you know, God is a magic vending machine, as he is in so many strategy games. If you pray, you will have rain. If you ignore the goddess of the fertility, 
you will lose everything. Um, in Children of the Nile, this is you know a very Egyptian way of seeing things, but also a very atheist way of seeing things. Temples are the opiate of the masses. In many ways, it's a civilization way of seeing things. The only reason temples are there in the early civ is to keep your people happy. And so it is in Children of the Nile. Why do you build temples? Because your people want temples. That's it. Your people are upset. They believe in the gods, even if you don't. And if something goes wrong, they want to pray. And if they won't pray, they're going to get angry. And they'll stop doing their work, or they'll leave. And that's the only reason to build temples. You have a great run of luck. People will ignore the temples. People will ignore church altogether. People will ignore the priests, because things are going well. Who cares? I'm getting buried. My children are getting educated. I don't have to go to temple. Some will, you know, because someone dies, or there's a wedding, or whatever. But they only really want the gods when the Nile hasn't flooded for three years in a row. Or there, you, there weren't enough trained scribes, and I couldn't get a doctor to deal with my medicine. Yeah, so there weren't enough priests to tan with the medicine. The dog, so I couldn't pray for, for health. Um, I would have a child, and my wife died in childbirth. And I wanted to pray to the gods, and nothing could happen. Because all these stories are being unfolded, because you can see in the character narratives, a little tag, everything going on in their lives, and what they're angry about. And you could follow what their concerns are. And sometimes the nobles were happy, and sometimes they were angry. And sometimes the peasants were happy, and sometimes they were angry. But, you know, the, all of these temples were just there to keep the people happy. And you get a sense of this is how early religion happened. How This is how, you know, ancient early civilizations created the religions. The, the, it wasn't just, we had this idea that religion is some, some great racket invented by priests uh, to you know, placate the people. Oh, if, you're, if you don't give me all your money, the gods will smite you. But, you know, there's actually, there's a lot of old, old superstitions. And I think there's something animal about this, uh, something very primeval about the desire to want to pray to something. And I think this cap, I think that religion mechanic captures something about early Egypt and early civilization. Just people want the gods. People need the gods and will hate their king for ignoring the gods. And you have this sense of Egypt as a city not just tied to the Nile, which it was irrevocably, and not just tied, tied to its monuments, which has become famous, but also tied to this religion, this grand, bizarre religion that the people had different gods for and wanted them at different times, and the priests had to be there. And if the pharaoh claimed to be a god, he better be honoring his gods. So you had to decide which temple you were going to build, and you were going to build shrines, and how big was it going to be, and how many priests do you need, and all of this. And it actually felt like you were managing it wasn't like, you know, uh, the other Impressions games where you plop, plop down the store, oh, you have a shopkeeper, a scribe's house, whoops, I have a scribe. No, you have to, you have to train these people. Um, so you had this real sense of you were governing a growing, potentially great civilization. Your cities never got really big. Uh, you often met your objectives well before the, they get metropolisized. But it really felt like... Egypt. It captured Egypt's character. It was the national character of Egypt and a city builder. Uh, could you do this in other games? Absolutely. I mean, you could have uh, other strategy games. I, I think uh, the British Industrial Revolution, what I, th I think, and we had uh, games about the, the railroad, the railroad baron era uh, in the U.S., uh, railroad tycoon. I mean, what could be more about the American character than railroad tycoon? I think that's a, a, one of the perfect American games. It's about 
exploring because you have to find new routes. It's about business. It's about you know rising and rise and fall of civilizations, uh, rise and fall of cities as some grow and some decline. It's about invention as new products come online. Can you anticipate that? It's about science because you have to know if your old engines are good enough to get up that hill to still make the route profitable. Railroad Tycoon, I think, is a perfect. It's a business sim. I think it's the most American. It's the most American strategy game ever, is Railroad Tycoon. Um, I think you can do something similar for the uh, British Industrial Revolution. Uh, it captures that. A, a German strategy game that's not about war. Um, I mean, the captures through the German character. If there weren't so many wars in the Age of Reformation, I would say the Age of Reformation. Um, it's a very good uh, board strategy game. Uh, called Here I Stand, about the Age of Reformation. But, you know, it has wars and conflict. Um, I, th I think there are lots of potential for uh, non-military, non-conflict-oriented games that tell us something about a particular nation's character. But many nations' characters, no, because you have to have the conflict. But about a single nation, I think there are a lot of options. Um, um, I mean, I, I, could, I could almost imagine uh, a casual indie game set in, in, in uh, the Mughal Emperor Akbar's court, where he has to try to uh, convert as many people to his new invented faith as he can before he dies, and his repressive Muslim son takes over. Um, he tells them about Akbar, tells them about Indian history, about the religious struggles between Hinduism and uh, Islam, and uh, Akbar's attempt to make all the religions just get along uh, in one big happy thing he invented. Uh, one of the great, great dreamers uh, and emperors of world history. There are all kinds of options out there if people want to try them. Like I said, I think some are out there, Children of the Nile and Railroad Tycoon are the two that spring immediately uh, to mind. If I still don't know where the German trading games fit into any of this. If they tell us anything about the German national character besides the Germans-like games that most of the world doesn't because the Germans love precision. Because the Germans love precision. I think that is actually part of it. I think there is something about... I, that's a bit of a stereotype. More than a bit of a stereotype. I know many sloppy Germans. Uh, but there's this sense that there's, there's something about the math. Uh, that if, even if you're not a precise person, math is seen as an acceptable subject for a game in a way that it isn't in other parts of the world. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, for the Germans. Yeah, so there, I think there are options. I'd love to see them being explored more. I'd love to see greater variety in how history is portrayed in games, not have it all be about uh, the, the so-called exciting bits, um, because there, you know, there are exciting bits that aren't about uh, war right around the corner. We're never going to have a really good uh, game, a really good modern global political simulation until we find a way to capture modern politics and modern nations and modern governments and all of these things about how today's countries work and look and see themselves until we find a way to make war completely beyond the pale in them. Uh, but as long as war is an option in these global sims, um, you're never going... I mean, war between France and Germany is completely beyond the pale now. I mean, it would just be ridiculous to imagine it uh, virtually. It, it, even then, the next 35, 50 years, we can't conceive of it. But, you know, a global political sim like the Supreme Ruler series or uh, Global Simulation or Supreme Ruler... Not, uh, super, uh, uh, not Supreme Ruler, the other one. What's the one I'm thinking about? It's Superpower. 
Supreme Ruler's uh, superpower, these terrible, terrible global sims, war was always an option. And it's as long as war is always an option and is not beyond the pale, you're never going to have anything that captures the post-World War II character of nations really well. You can't capture what it feels to deal with a, neo, a, a former colonial power, what it feels like to be South African, what South Africans are like, what Israelis are like, um, what Canadians are like. Because um, Canada is really not that important until, you know, five days in 1956, and so you know have, that's pretty much it. So you don't have that sense of modern national characters who today's nations are, and you can't, uh, as long as the fact, as long as military stuff is there, because since World War II, number of modern wars pretty tiny. The great powers certainly don't go messing around with it willy nilly, uh, like they do in strategy games. So we have to find a way to take that out and put other types of conflict in because uh, games have to have a conflict of some kind. Uh, I mean, it'd be nice to see strategy games that approach politics and nations and nationhood and national character that didn't presume war as not just, you know, the final resort, but as a profit-making venture, which is kind of what it is in strategy games. It's not, gee, should I go to war? It's, okay, when is my neighbor ripe for the picking? Right. And uh, yeah, there are city builders can do it. Economic Sims can do it. Um, it'd be nice if the Sims could do it. Maybe Sims tourist. Have a Sim go to a foreign land and meet all these different people and learn about them and sing it's a small world at the end in, 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 in Simlish. God. EA, call me. I'm surprised they're not on the phone right now. Well, they haven't heard what, this. What yet. idea is that good? <laughs> all right, so. That about that about wraps it up. The, you know, a couple things I've been thinking is, you know, as we reach the end of this topic, one is that I would be really interested to see, and, and again, perhaps it's impo- an impossible marketing challenge, but more games dealing with uh, moments of decline. You say that a lot of these national characters yeah. are are snapshots of a golden age. I would love more snapshots of a decline. How do how do empires fall? That's another thing that strategy games rarely touch on. Uh, or at least, or you're the agent of the fall, yep. uh, but you're rarely someone surveying, you know, a crumbling empire. That's why I think, you know, one of my favorite strategy memories was um, Rome Total Wars Barbarian Invasions uh, campaign, which is perhaps the, you know, one of the only strategy games I can think of that really touches on the late Roman Empire. Right. We talk about, we have this vision of the Romans as, you know, the the, the nation that always has its act together, um, is always, you know, efficient and strong. And when you play Barbarian Invasions, you're an exhausted superpower. There's, you know, huge territory, and there's nothing left. There's no morale, there's no loyalty. You've still got units that are recognizably descended from the Roman legions, but they are a shadow of their former selves. They're poorly trained mercenaries. And they're expensive. Yes. So, you know, that's that's another thing I would be be fascinated to see. And then... Yes, I would love to see more, you know, we say this all the time, I would love, you know, we, we would always love to see more strategy games that make uh, peacetime occupations as interesting as military occupations. And I do think perhaps your National Character series also points out one of the reasons why that hasn't been, why we haven't seen that as much. And that is, so often we think of National Character, we say, well, again, what units did this race have? But then we don't go that extra step the way, say, Children of the Nile does, or the way Railroad Tycoon does, and says, well, how do these people live differently? 
what did they value differently? Right. Uh, and that seems that that seems like you know an interesting frontier where you you know city builders are a dime a dozen, and so often it's just a question of you know maximizing resources. But what type of resources you're maximizing to what right. ends? Uh, that if you begin changing those, you begin creating different games and telling different stories. And that I think would be the next thing that would really that would really interest me. Get us beyond this. Well, the Russians have the cheap infantry that you know attacks and swarms, and here comes the German Panzer. Get us to get us to something else, something that doesn't involve what these two sides use to you know bludgeon each other to death. Yeah, but as long as strategy games are about territory, then it's going to be difficult to you have to think about strategy games as not about territory, different types of strategy games. Maybe not about nations at all. Uh, if we're going to do that, um, because it's because once you have multiple nations, you're different. If you think of conflict in a very, because there's got to be conflict. I mean, in Children of Nile, there's conflict, but the conflicts between you and your people, and you and time, and uh, you and the Nile, you and the seasons. Uh, railroad tycoon, the tent that conflicts between you and all the other railroad barons, try to drive them bankrupt. So there's always got to be conflict somewhere. Um, difficulties modeling conflict that's interesting, uh, that captures national character, uh, that doesn't, you know, presume that the countries have to be beating each other's heads in. Um, but, you know, we have this, it's, you know, we love, we love our war stories because, you know, they're, they're easier stories to tell. I could tell you, I could tell you some great stories while Children of the Nile. I can explain easily why I love the game. I can't tell you a great story from it that would make you excited. I can remember great moments. I was like, oh, I finally did it. But to tell you what happened would be the most boring AAR ever. Same thing with Railroad Tycoon. Oh, I just built a station in Philadelphia. But, you know, the story about its war stories are easier to tell. Uh, they're easier to show. And that's, you know, that's why we've... And if you're going to have multiple nations with national characters, they're going to be banging into each other. And it's easier to bang into each other with armies. Um... And yeah, you know, there were I, I I did fit a lot with, with other traits, not just about their units. Just the units are often the most distinguishable uh, things, and it's uh, it's it's been a fun series to write. I'll tell you that. Sorry it took so long, everyone. I really wanted to be done. But I seriously thought I could finish that by last Christmas. Seriously. Well, it certainly seems like the extra time didn't hurt it. Uh, it was an exceptionally well-written series. Uh, there were some there were some great lines. I think your closing your closing paragraph on China uh, was just. Fantastic! One of the one of the best pieces of games writing I read in the last year. I have to read that again. I forget what I said. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. Um, if you haven't done, done it already, you should definitely read the National Character series. Uh, hopefully, this discussion has primed you for a bit of what Troy gets into in that series. Um, Troy, thanks so much for uh, just hanging out and batting these ideas around for an hour or so. It's fun. I'm glad you could uh, take the time for it. We do these for all of my series. Uh, we had one on, if you're early coming to the podcast, I've also done a series on uh, on maps, and that was also an issue. Uh, the one on Romans before the podcast, but I did one on maps, and we had a podcast on that, and it was a very fun thing to do. Um, if you have questions about the series, uh, please Post in the read the posts, comment, uh, throw in all kinds of other things, and I want to thank everybody who linked to it. Uh, this has been linked to a hell of a lot. The guys at uh, this week in video game criticism and Rock Paper Shotgun and Gamma Sutra, and got meta filtered a couple of days ago, and it's been all through Twitter feeds, and it's been uh, seeing the response and very rewarding. Reminded me why I write, and I love you guys. And the last thing I'll say about the National Character series is. Uh... TLDR. Good night, everybody. <laughs>